Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter, reminding you to go to brightnews.com. Also, you can find us at acons.substack.com. You can also find us at anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S. And if you would like to support us, there is a button there at anchor.fm forward slash ACONS forward slash support. And you can do that as well. Lieutenant Colonel Allen B. West is a combat veteran of the United States Army where he served in uniform for 22 years. He was a member of the 112th Congress representing Florida, and he served as chairman of the Republican Party of Texas and was a gubernatorial candidate for Texas. He is currently the executive director of the American Constitutional Rights Union. He is the author of three books and the host of the Steadfast and Loyal podcast. Welcome back to the show. It's good to be with you, Marie. Thank you so very much. On your Substack feed this month, you've profiled some names in Black history that are maybe unknown to many. Uh, what? Why was this important to you? And who are some of these lesser known people that have inspired you? Well, I think it's important that we do that because so often we just follow the popular or the cultural narrative of the day. And it's very, you know, constrained and it's really uh, limited or within the parameters of the people that they want us to pay attention to that fits into an ideological agenda. So when you talk about someone like Elijah McCoy and think about it, we just had this train derailment and what he did to revolutionize the uh, railroad uh, transportation capability, the United States of America, indeed the world. And when you look at how he created this oil distribution uh, system for engines, uh, and people would always ask, you know, is this the real McCoy? I want the real McCoy on my uh, my engine. Well, it came from this man, Elijah McCoy, who had over 50 some odd uh, entrepreneurial uh, designs and patents. And even though he was first turned down, it did not uh, deter him in his drive and determination. So I think our young people out there that are looking to be uh, inventors and entrepreneurs need to hear his story. You think about Henry O. Flipper, who was a native Georgian like myself, the first uh, black graduate from West Point, United States Military Academy. We need to tell his story. And many of the others out there uh, Madam C.J. Walker, the first mm-hmm. black female millionaire. It wasn't Oprah Winfrey. It was Madam C.J. Walker. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that a lot of these people found success, even though this country was going through this period of segregation and uh, suppression of their individual rights. But still, they found a way to persevere and to carry on. I think that's just so important that we stress. And of course, you know that my favorite person is Booker T. Washington. Yes, I do. What is your view on Florida's AP African-American studies controversy, wherein they are elevating BLM, CRT, reparations, and Jamal Bowman has said, and he's a Democrat congressman, has said that um, Governor Ron DeSantis wanted to keep Blacks dumb, deaf, and blind so that he could oppress, suppress, and control us. What is your take? 
Well, I think that that's exactly what the progressive socialist left has been attempting to do. And that's why, as you said, we're sharing some of these lesser known individuals in black history out there, because it's not about we we shall overcome. It's about how people did overcome. And if we could get back to those fundamentals of individual rights and freedoms and education and entrepreneurship, uh, I think that you can have more self-reliance and less economic dependency. So again, it comes back to what we just talked about, how the progressive socialist left has a narrative. They have an ideological agenda. This whole thing about you can never rise above anything because you're oppressed. You have always been oppressed. And you will continue to be oppressed. You're just a perpetual victim. And that's not the real story that we need to have out there. If you want to tell the story about Black history, tell the story about Black history. Tell the story of uh, Mr. Armistead, who was really our first uh, 007 spy, you know, double yes. who, uh, you know, provided information to us about Lord General Cornwallis and his movements and enabled us to defeat him at Yorktown. Uh, most of our young people don't know about that. And so we have always had this connection. Robert Smalls, who was the, mm -hmm. you know, the slave who captured a Confederate gun running boat and delivered it to the, the USS, the CSS planter and delivered it to the Union forces. So tell those stories. But what they want to tell is the story, like I said, of victimization, of oppression. They want to tell the story of the, the 1619. So if you're telling 1619, then you're not telling 1776. You're not telling the Revolutionary War. You're not even telling the, uh, the Boston Massacre where one of the first people killed and the fight for independence of this country was Christmas Addicts, a freed man. That's absolutely right. You're absolutely right about that. And we had Chuck Devoron, uh, a mutual friend of ours, a uh, few weeks ago. And he said, you know, it's it's crazy that we're even talking about the 1619 Project because in 1619, we we're a British colony. Yes. You know, we weren't even. A, so, I mean, are we going to go to King Charles and say, hey, cough up the money? I, it's just crazy to me. So, well, that shows the delusion and the distortion of history because what they're trying to say that this country existed in 1619, it didn't. This country existed and was founded on July the 4th of 1776. And show me a perfect nation. I mean, no, no nation is perfect. I mean, should Egypt pay reparations to the uh, to the Jewish people? They had them in slavery for hundreds of years as yeah. well. But when you look at today's modern slavery as uh, promulgated and advanced by the, the leftist Democrat Party, it's an economic slavery. And instead of the plantations where you're picking cotton, now you have the plantations, which are the inner city communities, where it is all about harvesting votes. So it's the same thing. But I'm happy to have that discussion about history. I'm happy to have that debate. But let's be honest about it. Well, and the problem for me is, I mean, one of the things that we talked about recently on one of our Facebook lives was that Baltimore is saying that uh, that 23 schools, the kids are not. Uh, proficient in math. And yet mm -hmm. we want to teach uh, AP African-American studies with this 1619 reparations, BLM, hoo-ha, and our kids can't even read. They can't uh, add and subtract and do basic things that we need them to do. You wrote in a recent column at the ACRU that we're $41 trillion in debt. Uh, you know, our kids need to be able to compete in the global marketplace. So, yeah, you know, they can tell you about reparations now, but they can't do their taxes. They can't add. Mm -hmm. They can't subtract. They can't read. They can't do any of these things. And it's funny because the Democrats of Texas, I follow uh, 
I don't follow their Facebook re feed, but I read it sometimes. And they've been talking about Sarah Huckabee Sanders' response to the State of the Union last mm -hmm. week. And they were saying that, you know, oh, Republicans, you know, uh, want to take money away from our public schools. I, I can't think, and maybe you can, you're a couple mm -hmm. years older than I am, a few years older than I am. Um, in my 58 years, I have never, ever seen an inner city stronghold that was controlled by Republicans where kids couldn't read and write and all of those things. I mean, mm -hmm. you've seen Oakland, Detroit, Baltimore, all of these other cities where these kids cannot read and write and are not at grade level in so many basic subjects. Um, and they're all under Democrat control. So we've been throwing money at the problem. That's not the answer. No, you're absolutely right. And when you think about this whole thing of educational freedom, parental choice and parental rights, this is the new civil rights issue because right. our children are being relegated to these failed schools. And oh, by the way, who was the first person that talked about state or government control of education? That was Karl Marx. So again, I will come back to this representative that you just talked about, you know, who has really been keeping young black kids down all these years. It's the policies of, of the left, you know, the teachers unions. And of course, you never hear BLM or anyone standing up to the teachers unions. And you see the worst effect of COVID and the shutdowns and the lack of good quality education in these inner city urban communities. And when kids don't have that equality of opportunity through getting a good quality education, then they become the victims. They are part of this equity move to, you know, have equality of outcomes. And that to me is the most un you know democratic thing. It is because it's against the fundamentals of this country, the, the individual, their rights, their freedoms, their liberties, their ability to attain and achieve whatever their hearts and dreams desire. So I think that it is time that we look at these inner city communities and say, hey, you guys have been in control the last 50, 60, 70 years in some of these inner city communities. And this is where they see, we see the greatest failure of the leftist policies, especially in education. And I would challenge anyone out there in this Black History Month, any Black legislator at the federal level or at the state level, tell me why we cannot have a choice in education for everyone in the United States of America. As a matter of fact, Ron DeSantis won uh, his uh, race for, for being governor, not the re-election, but his first race, because he said that he would make sure that every child had the access to a good quality education, and he was not going to re regulate, relegate them to a failing public school system. And he won. And guess what? He delivered on that promise. Single Black mothers crossed over the, uh, the R&D line and voted for him. And that's why I mean, he won by less than 1%. That made the difference, his support of choice in education. Same with Glenn Youngkin. Yes. So absolutely right. You know, um, one of the things that we've been uh, talking about is that soft bigotry of low expectations yes. where, you know, we're going to throw out the SAT. We're going to dumb down all of these tests. We're going to not make you take a math test because, you know, math is racist. So patriarchy, all of that kind of hoo-ha. Um, and yet we're going to fill your minds with this indoctrination and uh, give you the wrong history. We're going to make you feel like you need reparations and all of this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And yet fail our children. Um, and so you don't have to take these tests. Or, and they were talking about tossing out the LSAT. Uh, there was a lot mm -hmm. of pushback on that, but they were talking about it. Um, and so 
why would you throw out all of these tests when it would just be easier and better for our children to teach them what they need to know? And rather mm -hmm. than having all these admissions-based DEI kind of garbage, why don't, mm -hmm. you know, the, one of the things that I've been talking about is are you ready for the rigors of a four-year study? Mm -hmm. uh, that has no color, no socioeconomic status. That's just internal characteristics. And our children can do that in the Black community. We've been doing that. So, you know, that kind of stuff to me is unconscionable. And like you said, it is a civil yeah. rights movement. You uh, know, it's, it's very, it's very interesting because my dad raised me, he had many different maxims and sayings, but he told me, son, I always find out what the standard is and exceed it. That was it. And that's how I've tried to live my life, not competing against a person, but finding out what the standard is and, and busting through the standard. You know, it's so interesting to me that we tell young black kids that you're not smart enough. You're too dumb. We got to lower this standard so that you can, you know, be a part of this. But look at athletics. We don't lower the standards in athletics. No. You know, you have to be the best to be out there on that on that playing field. You know, everyone's talking about how we had two black quarterbacks, starting quarterbacks, uh, for the first time in this Super Bowl. But guess what? Uh, there they weren't there because of equity. They weren't mm -hmm. there because someone, you know, manipulated the outcomes, especially in Philadelphia. I don't care who you are. If you're not winning and helping them to win in Philadelphia, they'll boo you. They'll get they'll they'll they don't want you. <laughs> And, and so why is it that we carve out excellence in athletics? We carve it out in, in entertainment. We carve it out in the music industry and whatever. But when it comes to this most important muscle, the, the brain, we, we tell young black kids, you can't make the standard. And so we've got to lower it for you. Uh, and to me, without a doubt, when you look at all this, that's the most racist thing that you could ever do is to say you're too stupid to be able to get out there and do this. We have to say that math is racist because we think you're too stupid to be able to do it. We don't think that voter IDs should be used because you're too stupid to be able to go out and get a picture ID. <laughs> I mean, and this is coming from one side. And this is always the side that's out there talking about this is racist, that is racist. That's why I'm here to tell you the Democrat Party, the progressive socialist leftists, and their new black overseers on this 21st century plantation, they are really the purveyors of systematic systemic racism. That's absolutely right. Now, on your podcast, at Fast and Loyal, before Mr. Biden's State of the Union address uh, and during the Chinese spy balloon controversy, you said the weakness that we are showing on the international stage will really hurt us in a big way. How so? Well, I mean, in every way, shape, form and fashion, weakness is enticing. You know, I, I've been in combat and, you know, the enemies, the, the radical Islamic jihadists and whatever, they don't respect weakness. As a matter of fact, they feed off the weakness. When you show strength on the battlefield, people are going to try to avoid you because they don't want to get their butts kicked. And so when you go back and you look at the decision that the Biden administration made in Afghanistan, uh, that was a complete, utter show of weakness. And, and really, you know, you think about it, uh, you know, Putin and Russia went in and took over the Crimea during Barack Obama's term. And now they have come back doing Barack Obama's third presidential term. That's yes. what I call the Biden administration. Yes. And, the, and they're looking to finish the job in, in Ukraine. So when you have these weak leaders that can't stand up to 
you know, the dictators, the, the autocrats and the theocrats out there, when you have a leader that would undercut and undermine his own energy uh, independence in the oil and gas industry and then go begging hat in hand to the Saudis or to Venezuela, uh, this this is an abject weakness. And so now all of a sudden you have a Chinese spy balloon that you 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 acquired, you knew as soon as it hit the Aleutian Islands and came over uh, American airspace, why didn't you engage it? Why didn't you engage it over Alaska? I mean, the worst thing could happen, it might fall on a moose, maybe two, <laughs> okay? Uh, but you allowed to transverse all across the United States of America, hover over very classified military installations, and then you shoot it down over the ocean. Now you're scrambling to, you know, get the bits and pieces of it uh, as the, you know, the uh, Gulf Stream can take that stuff all, you know, all up along the uh, north northeastern Atlantic coast. Um, so these are the type of weaknesses. You see a military that's more focused on, you know, gender dysphoria and the use of proper pronouns and things of this nature. The Air Force Academy telling cadets you cannot use the words mom and dad. Uh, you know, this is this is crazy. And what is the result of that? You cannot make your retention and recruitment goals because no one wants to be a part of a military that's showing abject weakness or a military where you have the leadership thereof from the commander chief that is putting you in an untenable situation like we saw in Afghanistan and we lost 13 uh, Marines, a soldier and a sailor. So that's the type of weakness that you see. And that's why you see Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, the Islamic jihadists. And on top of that, you're not even securing your own border. You're not even protecting your own national sovereignty. You're allowing millions of people to illegally enter to your country and you're giving them benefits. So now the transnational narco-criminal uh, terrorists that we call the cartels, they see that weakness as well. And they're making billions of dollars off of it. Let's pick up on that theme of leadership. There was a recent Gallup poll that reported that when asked about the biggest problem in the country, even more so than issues like inflation or crime, respondents said poor leadership. Mm -hmm. As someone who was a leader for most of your adult life and who has uh, led others into battle, would you speak to the importance of leadership and why you think so many answered in this way? America is a rudderless ship on a tumultuous sea heading toward the rocks, and we're getting really close to, to crashing into it. We don't have uh, anyone manning the hell, manning the uh, on deck. Uh, it's just whichever way the tide is taking us. And the military taught me that there are five aspects to leadership. There's courage, there's competence, there's commitment, there's conviction, and there's character. And that's what's missing in the United States of America right now. Now, there are some people on the progressive socialist leftist side who think everything's going absolutely fine uh, because it's all about their power and control of every single aspect of our operating systems, you know, being the economy, healthcare, uh, the military, what have you, is more so about their ideological agenda of climate change and uh, gender dysphoria and sexualization of our children and all these other things. So to them, everything is going absolutely great. When we are you know, undermining our economy because of centralized control, we are undermining our oil and gas industry, but that's not leadership. Leadership stands up and says that I know the right and true principles. Uh, I'm committed to them. Uh, no matter what people say or, or stand up and speak about, I'm going to stay convicted to doing what is right. And I'm going to continue to do what's right when no one is watching. That's what character is about. But when you look at Joe Biden on the international stage, he doesn't seem like a courageous individual. 
He certainly is not a competent individual. So he possesses no aspect of leadership whatsoever. All he was was the perfect person for the moment to hide in the basement uh, and and to you know help in the defeat of Donald Trump because that was the whole thing. They didn't want to replace him with a better leader. They just wanted him gone. And now look at what we have. You wrote right now, America is facing a level of lawlessness that is highly disconcerting. Everywhere we turn, we see the dismissal of what is supposed to be the law, whether it is at the border, on our streets, in our courts, in our schools, or even in our homes. There is a dedicated, purposeful, and intentional desire to undermine the rule of law. Therefore, as we are in dire need of a discussion and understanding of the topic, it is pertinent to ask, what is the law? End quote. Can you speak to the law and why you believe we're facing such lawlessness today? Sure. Uh, and when I think about the law, I think about the essay that was written by the French economist in the 1840s, uh, Frederick Bastiat, and that essay was published in the 1850s. And the law is very simple. Uh, each and every one of us as an individual, we have the natural right, John Locke, Secretary of the Government, 1689, uh, of life, liberty, and property. And what the law is, is that instead of us sitting around and saying that individually I'm going to protect my life, liberty and property, we allow an entity to, you know, collectively protect us in our life, our liberty and our property. But what we see happening is such a perversion of that law through government uh, because they're not operating within the consent of the government. They're not operating within their own ideological agenda. And it is not about constitutional rights. It's this redefinition based upon ideological rights. So now all of a sudden, you know, they believe that, you know, anybody, you know, you have the right to, to be married and we're going to, you know, make sure that happens. Or uh, you have the right to kill babies in the womb and we're going to make sure that happens. Or you look at, you know, we have the right to, you know, tax you specifically and instead of making sure that you have an equitable distribution as far as, uh, as taxation. Because, you know, coming back to what Mark said, from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. And so, you know, this whole thing, when I looked at Joe Biden and the State of the Union address, it, it was really what uh, Basia called legal plunder, that we're going to go after certain people to fuel and uh, to resource our ideological agenda. Uh, the whole Green New Deal thing and all this green energy, climate change stuff, this has nothing to do with the rule of law. Uh, forcing me to put solar panels on my home or trying to force me to drive an electric vehicle, I don't want to, and I should not have to. Uh, I should be able, in the free marketplace of ideas, make the choice that I, I want, and we're blessed here in the United States of America with an abundance of energy resources. So I, I, I think about what just happened down in uh, Nogales, Arizona, where you have a 73-year-old man by the name of George Allen Kelly, who has been arrested and charged with premeditated murder, uh, $1 million in bond because an illegal immigrant who had been transiting back and forth across our border since 2016 was found dead on his property. Mr. Kelly called once he discovered this gentleman on his property, his dogs, you know, tracked it and, and found him. He called law enforcement and, and had them come out. And uh, this, they decided to arrest him. Why did they decide to arrest him? Because again, he admitted that earlier, some illegal immigrants dressed in camouflage, dressed in khakis, had come onto his property, his ranch property, 
and he heard a gunshot. He went out there with his rifle because he wanted to protect what his his wife and himself, life, their liberty, their freedom. That's their uh, that's their uh, home and their property. Uh, and so he fired warning shots when one of them lowered an AK-47 towards him, and now he's arrested. The people that should be arrested in jail right now, uh, Marie, are Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Alejandro Mayorkas, and all the other people that have said we are abdicating our, our constitutional duty, abdicating the rule of law to say that we're going to protect Americans, we're going to protect their sovereignty. But yet now we have forced people into a situation like you see with Mr. Kelly, and we're arresting him. So this complete perversion and violation of the law is going to continue to descend into an abyss, which I don't know where we end up, but the American people are only going to take us so far when they see that the ideology and they see the illegal people, uh, their rights, their freedoms is more important than that of the law abiding and uh, legal citizen. You know, I remember during your gubernatorial campaign, you went to the border a number of times and you shot some video. And I remember one of the things that you talked about was really absolutely stunning to me was um, this concept of people who live on the border in those border towns abandoning their property. I know yeah. what I went through to buy our house. I know you yeah. own your house. Um, it's um, it, it's it's staggering to me to think about the investment that you make when you buy a home that that down payment that you save up for, mm -hmm. uh, all the earnest money that you have to put in, all of that sort of stuff, and to abandon your property um, because you're finding dead, bloated bodies, you're finding your cattle stolen, um, your animals killed uh your property uh taken you know vehicles uh automobiles stolen just right off of your property uh it, it's just insane it's unconscionable and and that comes you know again back to the law when you have people that are saying we're not going to abide by the law yeah we're, 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 you know what we believe is we don't have to have a border and so we're going to let people come across and you the law-abiding citizen we don't give a damn about you we don't, we don't, we'll throw you in jail and give you a $1 million bond when here's a person that illegally came onto your property. And this is a person has been traversing back and forth across the border, apprehended and deported. I don't know how many times since 2016. And so you're right. When you see these people that are losing their property and their livelihoods, when you see people that are living in terror, when you see businesses, a lot of uh, hunting happens down in South Texas along with those ranches, but people don't want to come down there uh, anymore. So people are losing that business as well because they think it's too dangerous. We have allowed the Mexican cartels, a terrorist organization, to take over our border zone and no one is doing anything. I, I, you know, The governor of Texas is not doing jack squat. He's doing a lot of press releases. He's doing a lot of photo ops. He's just named someone as a border czar. The bottom line is that when the federal government is abdicating their role and responsibility, the Constitution gives you the enumerated power to do something, you should be turning people around. We should not have single military aged males coming across the border. We should not have people with AK-47s and camouflage. We should not have this fentanyl crisis, human and sex trafficking crisis. The whole reason is happening because no one in an elected position is standing up for the rule of law in the United States of America. Um. As we talk about lawlessness on January 10th, Tyree Nichols, a 
year-old African-American was clubbed, punched, and kicked to death by five African-American police officers. What was your reaction upon hearing the news and seeing the video of this horrific event? And why do you think that so many pointed to this case of a black man being killed by other black men as an example of white supremacy? Well, first and foremost, black men are being killed by other black men every single day, every single weekend all across the United States of America. But nobody wants to talk about that. And so now this comes out. And of course, the left had it all teed up for their normal narrative. Then, oops, uh, these were five black cops uh, who were basically thugs in uniform. And this is what happens again when you lower the standards in law enforcement and you let these individuals that are coming in. And I can guarantee you that this was not the first time something like this has happened. And oh, by the way, the Memphis Police Department has a black chief as well. So what you continue to see happening again is the left has to fit everything into this narrative of white supremacy when it has nothing to do with it. And that's why they look so absolutely out of touch and absurd, especially in this case. We got an issue with standards in, in law enforcement. That's all it comes down to. And, you know, this unit that was created, first and foremost, leadership will be out there with this unit and making sure that they're following the right standards. They're, you know, showing dignity and respect to people out there on the streets. But without a doubt, these gentlemen, these five individuals and, and the system of law worked in this case uh, before anything came out. They were suspended without pay. They were arrested, they were charged, and then all of a sudden the video comes out. So why are you going to go out and burn stuff down and break uh, businesses and stop traffic when the system of law did exactly what it's supposed to do uh, in this case? So the left has to look at everything in the prison. And think about what just recently happened at Michigan State University. That was a black man that went on that campus and shot up that yes. campus. But you're not hearing the people about it, are you? And furthermore, he was a black man that should not have had a weapon in the first place because he had already had a felony uh, of carrying a, a, a weapon without a concealed carry license. But guess what? An activist leftist judge, because he was a person of color, did not charge him with that felony. And now you see what happens. We also saw lawlessness in Georgia, your birth state, where mm -hmm. Antifa had been rioting in the streets of Atlanta, uh, partly protesting the building of a police training facility. The riots were not as violent as some that we've seen uh, in the past, but why hasn't Antifa been named a domestic terrorism group as other groups such as the Proud Boys and mm -hmm. the Oath Keepers generally are? Yeah, that comes back to the courage and leadership. You know, Governor Brian Kemp in Georgia should have immediately done that because you had, look, I, you know, in the First Amendment, you have the right to petition your government for redress of grievances. That's fine. But that means peaceful protest. And anyone that takes the things into their own hands and starts to enact violence, then you get the consequences thereof. So when the Antifa member shot a Georgia state trooper, guess what? They returned fire. The Antifa member was killed. And now Antifa then goes into the streets and they start once again burning and, and tearing down things. They're a domestic terrorist organization. They should be dismantled. You know, we should go after the leadership. I have not heard of a single Antifa uh, leader being arrested and, and charged, but yet we have billions of dollars of uh, property that's been destroyed at their hands. We have many people 
that have lost their lives because of them. We have police officers out in uh, Portland, Oregon, who were blinded uh, because of these laser devices that they were shining into their eyes and in their faces. So why have we not had you know, leaders with the courage to stop this? To include right here in Texas, where we had them shut down I-35 in the state capital of Texas, block traffic in the state capital of Texas. And of course you had the uh, Antifa member who leveled his AK-47 at a uh, young army uh, sergeant. And of course you do that to a member of the United States uh, Armed Services, guess what they're gonna do? They're gonna return mm -hmm. fire because you're showing hostile intent. But yet who was charged in this? The, uh, the army sergeant when this was an act of self-defense, even though he reported himself to, to law enforcement. So yes, we have a domestic terrorist organization in Antifa and Jane's Revenge, this uh, organization mm -hmm. that's going out there and attacking pro-life uh, centers. But Mayor Garland does not uh, find it ne necessary to go out and uh, go, uh, go after these members, these organizations. Should the new House leadership agree to raise the debt ceiling without conditions or compromises as President Biden is demanding, or should they extract meaningful spending, uh, should they fight to extract meaningful spending cuts, even if it means a government shutdown? You know, let's look at it this way. Um, I'm 62 years of age. Uh, in February 1961, when I was born, the debt of the United States of America was $289 billion. 50 years later, when I go into Congress, the debt of the United States of America was $14 trillion. Two years uh, when I come out of Congress, the debt had jumped. In just two years, the debt had jumped to $16 trillion. Now, since I've been out of Congress 10 years, the debt has gone from $16 trillion and now it's $32 trillion. Okay, when are we going to stop this nonsense? And when are we going to start looking and saying that we've got to get the fiscal house in order? This is not a revenue issue. It's a spending issue. And as long as we continue to allow, you can't do this in your household, Marie. You cannot yeah. go to Visa, Amex, MasterCard, Discover, anybody and say, hey, look, you know, just just raise my debt ceiling uh, <laughs> and, and please, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll pay you back or whatever. Just just keep raising so I can keep spending money. Or, you know, you can't go to the bank and say, hey, let me borrow some more money. Well, you've already. No, I need to borrow some more money and never show a plan by which you're going to pay it back. That's exactly what's happening with the federal government. And so this has to stop. This has to end. So, yes. We need to have some type of uh, spending restraint. And I know the left always tries to scare people with you going mm -hmm. after the mandatory spending side, the Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. But you've got plenty that you can start correcting on the discretionary side, being defense discretionary and non-defense discretionary, because the size and scope of the federal government has gotten bloated. It is out of control too many redundancies and duplicative uh, agencies and programs out there. They are not within their constitutional limitations as prescribed in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution by what is their duties and responsibilities and roles and, and jurisdictions and purviews. You've said on your podcast that, quote, America is suffering because we've gotten away from the basics. We don't understand our foundation, end quote. How is this unmooring from our basics evident and how do we reverse it? I just think when you look at how we're making people victims and, you know, you talked about having a government shutdown. 
uh, okay, you know, what are the priorities for the government? Let's fund the priorities for the government. But the amazing thing is that every time we have one of these government shutdowns, they let a few people, you know, off. And then when it's over, they come back and they pay them, you know, for the time that they were off. So we really hadn't shut down the government whatsoever. And, you know, really, I don't think a lot of people miss those individuals. So if you if you laid these people off, then that's part of the inefficiency. So we continue to believe that this structure, this thing called government, is more important, and this beast has to be fed than the individual. The the preeminence of the individual, their rights, their freedoms, is is you know supersedes the government. The government works for the individual and should be promoting their freedoms. Instead, we have a government that believes the individual should be supporting them, and that balance is all the way upside down. Uh, we're creating more victims. We want people to be wedded to the government uh, and things of this nature. And so instead of us focusing on what the real constitutional roles, responsibilities, duties, rights of the, uh, that the, uh, and the parameters that the Constitution lays out on the government, we're just blowing it out of proportion. So we've got to get back to the fundamentals of blocking and tackling a constitutional republic. And, you know, and Joe Biden, I'm happy to give you a lesson about why America is a constitutional republic and not a democracy. It even says so in the Constitution itself. Maybe you ought to read it. You've been up there in Washington, D.C. for 50 plus years. Uh, if we don't start talking about this in our homes, in our churches, our communities, in our schools, about civics and civics education, then we're going to continue to go down a very bad path where they think that, you know, Joe Biden can just stand up there and say, so let it be written, so let it be done. And we have to follow it. Edicts, orders, mandates, and decrees are the means by which you rule over people. We're supposed to be governed, not ruled in the United States of America. Amen to that. If you are just joining us, our guest this segment has been Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. How can our listeners continue to follow you online and follow your work? Well, I'm out there on Substack and uh, Rumble and YouTube and all the other social media platforms, except TikTok. You know, I will not support the Chinese Communist Party, and I wish that we would ban TikTok from the United States of America, period, along with all these other Chinese corporations like ZTE, Huawei, and what have you. But uh, I'm out there and everything. You can purchase uh, the books that we have written on Amazon.com. And please check out the Steadfast and Loyal podcast as well. Thank you for being our guest today. My pleasure always, Maria. And God bless you and God be with the African-American conservatives. Thank you. Well, let's bring in DK and get his take on all of that. DK, come on in. Hola. Well, hello. How are you? Being it too. I'm doing quite well. Thank you. Excellent what did you take. think of our guest today? I thought he was brilliant as always. You know, always. I, I, I can't think of anything that he says that, you know, I, I always agree with too much. I always agree with 95% of what he says, but I think he, he I think he got the 100% mark today. He's just he's very he's very intelligent, very uh articulate and he's he's right on the issue. So uh -huh. what can you say when he's right he's right. That's right. He did touch upon two things I wanted to underscore at least. One was the the Chinese um spy tobacco and I was curious about that because why would the Chinese have a a balloon that could be easily seen closely the size of uh, what they say three school buses float so yeah. close to the ground when they have so many ways of spying us spying on us already? They have satellites. Yeah. They have uh, they have um, 
they infiltrated academia and many business uh, communities. They have um, people who, I know Diane Feinstein, she had a, a chauffeur that was allegedly a spy. We have mm -hmm. a congressman who allegedly had an affair with the Chinese. Thing, thing. Yeah. And, and, and they have TikTok, which Alan West just referenced, which is mm -hmm. probably the greatest spying device ever created. Mm -hmm. It's a genius because they say 40% of Americans, give or take, use TikTok. I think it's higher than that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a really brilliant way of spying on the country. You introduce something like that and you have access to information more than you can ever imagine. So they have all that. I'm, I'm struggling to understand what, what they need a balloon for also. I think it might be something more serious than just spying. Now, I read that if you put a nuclear device on a, a balloon like that and have it float over a country, then it, uh, ignite it, you can, you can blow that country back into the Stone Age easily. You, you interrupt their um, electric grid. You know, they can't get on the internet. They can't turn on the power in their house. Their cars won't work. It's... It's a very real threat that I don't think any president uh, has really addressed. And when I saw this uh, balloon story, that's the first thing I thought of. So, One of the concerns I have, and uh, we've talked about this with Alan West on the show before, but uh, all of this uh, land grab, at least here in Texas, swaths of land near it's not just purchasing big tracts of land, which is concerning in and of itself, but where this land is located, one big tract is right next to, you know, an Air Force base. And so those sorts of things are very, very concerning. I know in this legislative session here in Texas, one of the things that is up uh, for discussion is uh, curtailing those kinds of purchases. But that's scary stuff. I mean, to have uh, ownership uh, of land by the CCP next to uh, Air Force installations. And then this kind of activity, and now we're talking, we're hearing about F-16s and all kinds of, that's a, that's that's not a, a normal scenario. Yeah, it's, it's hard to ignore uh, so many different things happening at this point. I really wonder if President Xi of China doesn't know more about this country, especially the American military than President Biden. Oh, what, yeah. What can't he know? That's right. That's right. And also wants to mention something a little bit more lighthearted, which is uh, uh, Black History Month. And every Black History Month, this story comes up. It has to do with Black History Month food, soul food. And I just want to uh -huh. show, <laughs> show this video for a second, if we can and parents at a Rockland County Middle School sounding the alarm over a lunch menu item. As CBS 2's Alicia Reed reports, a meal seen widely as offensive was served on the first day of Black History Month. You should feel very happy mm -hmm. that you spoke up. Yeah, I am. A mother reassuring her daughter after a racially insensitive lunch option was served at Nyack Middle School the first day of Black History Month. 
I just hope that they won't do it again at a different school or at my school ever again. Instead of Philly cheesesteak, broccoli, and fresh fruit, Aramark, the food service company that provides meals to the district, served chicken and waffles and watermelon. I was questioning, like, because they don't usually give watermelon. If they had served chicken and waffles by itself, I don't know that we would be having this conversation. But the moment you add in the watermelon, that changed the whole complexion, literally. In a statement, Aramark apologized for the insensitivity, saying in part, while our menu was not intended as a cultural meal, we acknowledge that the timing was inappropriate and our team should have been more thoughtful in its service. But so the school in New York decided to serve... Um, Watermelon fried chicken on the first day of Black History Month. And of course, that offends so many Black people because, God forbid, we we be depicted as uh, people who love fried chicken and watermelon. And the funny thing is, is like like I said, I see this story every year. Every year. <laughs> every, every year. year. It's either a school or a company or, uh, you know, like... Uh, President Trump on Cinco de Mayo when he had his taco salad <laughs> bowl. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, um, back when you and I first met, there was the story about, I think it was an NBC uh, commissary in New York. Then the Black History Month, they, they served this great menu. It had uh, jalapeno cornbread and fried chicken and collard greens. And so many people, even celebrities, got involved about how offensive that was. And and I remember tweeting that I want I want some jalapeno cornbread myself. <laughs> they don't want it. <laughs> they can bring all the jalapeno cornbread and fried chicken to me, the black eyed peas, because I gladly I'll gladly eat it. But the the thing I want to mention is that besides the humor of it, it does show how how ignorant so many people are when it comes to black history. They, they're more concerned about African-American studies than African-American history. Mm -hmm. If they were more concerned about African-American history, they would know that the watermelon is not only a, a popular staple, especially in the South, that is an important symbol for African-Americans, at least initially, because when the, the slaves were emancipated, one of the things they did to survive economically was to sell watermelon. And the watermelon became a, a great symbol of freedom for free black families. As a matter of fact, one of the great playwrights, one of the most successful playwrights of all time, an African-American named August Wilson, you know, he wrote Fences and the Piano Lessons and so many brilliant plays. He has a, had a stack of Pulitzer from the floor to the ceiling basically Tony Awards and so forth. One of his plays, um, the piano lesson, I think, the lead character was a, a watermelon salesman. And they asked him about that, August, why do you have a black man selling watermelon in your play? You know, that's just feeding into a stereotype. And he had to tell them that watermelon to black people originally was a symbol of our freedom. That's why uh, it, it was so important to him to use in his play. That's why it remained so popular in the black community for so long. And what happened was a lot of people, white people, started mocking the watermelon 
in a, in a racist way, you know, as you know, it's links to black people and black people got embarrassed to be associated with the watermelon over the years, which is really unfortunate. If they knew this, if they knew the history of black people in the watermelon, that uh, I guess a lot of them would not feel that way. They would be proud watermelon eaters. And the same with fried chicken, you know, we were basically brilliant at making food that the uh, slave owners would reject it, you know. Yeah. We have a million things associated with the pig, you know, from chitlins to mm -hmm. hog cheese, pig Pig's tongue, feet. pig's mm -hmm. feet, uh, and, and, and fried chicken. We became masters of fried chicken. And that's another thing that black people did once they became emancipated. They sold fried chicken, uh, especially to white people. And, and of course, white people, some white people, you know, not the majority, but this, there was a few, just like they mocked us for watermelon, they mocked us for selling fried chicken. So these things became negative tropes in a very unfortunate way because they should And the caricatures. I mean, you know, when you would see minstrel shows or you would see uh, the uh, cartoons and those kinds of things um, uh, during that time, you know, it was always with the big lips eating watermelon yeah. and that kind of, yeah. Exactly. It's like that they, they mocked us for some of the things mm -hmm. we, we should have pride in. It's not just our food, the way we used to enjoy music, for example. Remember those uh, old minstrel show, uh, Heckle and Jekyll cartoons, you know, and it always had these two black crows. I guess they were supposed to represent black people at the time. And we were always, the crows were always singing and dancing the, the jazz songs that were popular at the time. And it became very offensive to black people. But if you actually listen to the music that blacks were doing, that we were being mocked for, the old Cab Calloway hits and Lionel Hampton stuff, it's really brilliant music, you know, and, um, and it, it's and their stories were so inspiring. I mean, exactly. given what they had to to deal with, uh, the places where they were not allowed to stay and, and all of that kind of stuff, the successes that so many of them had uh, were just astronomical, uh, you know, during that, that era. Exactly. So Black Harlem, you know, oh, yeah. Just yeah, it's like that movie, The Cotton Club. It's just mm -hmm. great music, great food. That's what so much of Black culture is, you know, and always was. Great music, great food. So I encourage everybody to celebrate Black History Month by getting a big plate of fried chicken, get some jalapeno cornbread, get some uh, Black Eyed Peas. I made Black Eyed Peas the other night. Yes, I did. Yes, <laughs> you, I did. You and I, we disagree on chitlins. I love them, but I say add, add the chitlins to the plate. No, 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 no. Well, I'll eat all the chitlins you don't want. How's that? There you go. As long as your mom makes them and not you. Yes. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even try that one. That's a hard one to make. Um, so Got to do it right. Got to do it right. Get yourself a big plate of uh, soul food. You know, get your watermelon as dessert. Put on some old jazz songs. There's no better way, in my opinion, to celebrate Black history than that. Amen to that. 
Well, I'm going to let DK have the last word there that you can't say it any better than that. <laughs> so that wraps up this episode of African-American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. Please go to brightnews.com. Follow uh, Bright News. You can uh, click the YouTube link there and you will get all of the podcasts that are there. Uh, and ACONS is one of them. You can also go to anchor.fm forward slash AACONS or you can follow our Substack, ACONS, AACONS dot substack.com. Alan West Substack is also there. That's alanwest.substack.com. And that's how we'll do it on this episode of African-American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm Marie bidding you farewell for this week. Adios.